You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. I am quoting from whom? Martin Luther, a number of you are familiar with that. What was he so passionate about? What was Martin Luther so passionate about? Truth. Truth. Thank you. He was passionate about truth, and specifically God's truth. Martin Luther was on trial. He was on trial for teaching heresy. He was both a pastor and a professor, and he was on trial for heresy before an assembly of some of the most significant religious and governmental leaders in the land. It had been four years. It had been four years since he posted his 95 thesis on the church door at Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago this week. His protesting, thus Protestant, his protesting of errors and corruptions in the established Roman church had caused quite a stir across Europe. And now, on this day, in 1521, Dr. Luther declared that he would not, he would not back down from teaching biblical truth, even if it cost him not only his reputation, even if it cost him not only his position, his job, but if it cost him his very life. As I've been reflecting for a long time on this anniversary that we celebrate today, and as I've prepared to feed you God's Word today, I find myself asking a very personal question. Would, would I be willing to do that? Would, would, I, would I be willing to risk not only my reputation, not only my position, would I be willing to risk my very life for God's truths. Which truths? Which doctrine would I be willing to die for? It may seem like an odd question here in the 21st century North America that we live in. Thinking about someone being willing to die for certain biblical doctrines. And yet I remind you that as we're here in the comfort of our American assembly... We have brothers and sisters in Christ who this day are giving their lives for that very reason. Well, let me turn the question to you. Would you be willing to die? Would you be willing to risk your life for biblical truth? And and if you're ready to say yes, let me ask... What biblical truths? What doctrines? What we believe, what we really believe matters. Our beliefs, those things 
we believe to be true shape our view of life. What's important? What's not important? What's to be treasured? What really doesn't matter that much? Our beliefs shape how we live and why we live that way. And I might add even more importantly, what we believe impacts our eternity. What happens to us after we die? So, how are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to know what's true? What's really true? How are we supposed to determine that? Well, in Luther's day, that important question, that very foundational question, was answered in two ways. The established doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church was that the Bible spoke with authority. Sometimes we Protestants forget that. They said the Bible speaks with authority. But they said there's another equal authority, which, by the way, is still official Catholic doctrine. There's a second equally authoritative source of truth, and that is the Pope and church councils. And so in Luther's day and in our day, the Roman church said there's these twin ways, these parallel ways we can know truth, what's absolute truth. The Bible and the Pope and councils. Now, if you go back to Luther's day and you say, what was he so passionate about? What, what was the burr underneath this man's saddle, this professor's saddle? Well, he had this growing conviction in the preceding years that he found it increasingly difficult to trust the authority of the Pope and councils because if he studied history, the history of the church, he recognized that one pope might say something that was different than a preceding pope. And one church council might say something different than a preceding council. And so here the official doctrine was that the church, the pope and council, spoke with authority, oral authority, equal to that of the Bible, the written word of God. And so he was wrestling with this. If the Pope and the councils are speaking with absolute authority, which Pope am I supposed to believe? Which council am I supposed to believe? Because the Popes and the councils sometimes differ with the Word of God, often differed with the Word of God, and they even differ among themselves. How am I supposed to rest my life and eternity on this, this avenue, this pipeline of truth coming supposedly through the Pope and councils. Now, to make matters even worse, the established practice of the church in his day was that average people could not understand the Bible. They could not. And so the Bible was actually kept from the people. In Luther's day, the people did not have the Bible in their own language. And if they did have it in some sort of black market sort of way, they could get in trouble for owning a copy or for reading a copy. Only ordained people can understand the Bible. And so even though the people might have heard the Bible taught, they could only hear it as the priest presented it. They were only allowed to believe what the priest said. They didn't have the benchmark of the Bible by which to judge what they heard from their preachers and their teachers. So, 
I'm guessing that there are at least some people here today who are asking, so what? <laughs> that was 500 years ago. I don't, I don't live in Germany 500 years ago. I live in America, 21st century. What does that have to do with me? Well, amazingly, at least in my mind, we face a very serious, a very similar problem in our own day. Now, I'm going to ask you to help me with this. Here in our 21st century North American culture, how do most people determine truth? How do most people determine truth? Google. <laughs> I didn't have that one in my notes, but thank you very much. <laughs> or Alexa or Siri, whoever. <laughs> Popular opinion. For most people, it's internal. In fact, uh, we live in a society that largely is committed to determining truth internally. Well, what's true for me might not be true for you. What's true for you might not be true for me. Truth is determined internally and subjectively. I was reading an interesting blog post about this just recently. A lady named Linda Kiefer, I don't know who she is, but what she said caught my attention. She writes, in our world, the idea of ultimate truth, something that is true at all times, in all places, and has relevance for our, li relevance for our lives, is about as extinct as a dinosaur. In fact, nearly three out of four Americans say that there's no such thing as ultimate or absolute truth. Three-fourths. And there's been multiple surveys, and it always comes out about the same. About three-fourths of the people you work with, go to school with, live in your neighborhood, say there's no such thing as absolute truth. Truth that is above us, true for everyone, all the time. Anyway, back to her blog post. She says, and the numbers don't look much better among those who claim to follow Jesus. Ouch. She continues. In a society where ultimate truth is treated like a fairy tale, an outdated idea, or even an insult to human intelligence, the motto of the day becomes, whatever. Believe whatever you want. Do whatever seems best to you. Live for whatever brings you pleasure as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And of course, be tolerant. Don't try to tell anyone that their whatever is wrong. Is that ringing true for you? Is that the world you live in? In our current North American context, the great majority of people believe the truth is determined subjectively, individually, based on our personal experiences, our personal feelings, and our personal preferences. And from what I've been reading, the percentage of people who have that outlook on life, that paradigm about life, is growing. It's actually growing. And it's even growing among people who claim to be, quote, born-again Christians. Do you see the parallels between what we're facing today in 21st century North America and what Luther was facing in Saxony 500 years ago? Do, do, do you see the parallels? Now, instead of having one pope in Rome telling us what is truth, we have millions of popes 
Everybody is his or her own pope. It's multiplying. We, we have popes all over the place. People who insist, I can determine what's true for myself. I don't need anything outside of me. I don't need anyone above me telling me what's true. I'm the determiner myself of what's true for me. Instead of having the shifting pronouncements of one church council after another, we have the shifting opinions of popular opinion, popular majority opinion, often pressing on our consciences. Popular opinion dominating social media has become the church council of our culture. So, is there such a thing as objective truth? Is there such a thing as absolute truth? Something that we can hang on to tell us how to live, that can tell us how to be ready for eternity? Or, are we just left to ourselves to try to figure it out? Please join me in the little book of Jude. Jude, in many copies of the Bible, is only one page long, so if you have trouble finding it, just find the book of Revelation and back up a page. <laughs> the book of Jude. And as you turn to the little book of Jude, let me say this. God did give us an authoritative, unchanging body of truth. Contrary to popular opinion, there are absolute, unchanging truths. This goes back to God being creator. And, and uh, for those of you who are regulars here at CCC, I've asked you this question before. How, how do our Bibles begin? As God ordained what the Bible would read like, how did he begin? What is the very first sentence in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens think about that. God writes this big book and he wants that to be the opening statement. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You know who's included in that? You are. I am. And so right from the get-go, right out of the gate, God says, I created everything, everyone. And he's making a statement of authority. He's making a statement of who he is and what right he has over creation. And so God is the creator God. And as the creator God, God has spoken. God has not been silent. God has spoken. He has told us who he is. He has told us who we are. He has told us how we can be right with him. And by his spirit, he moved upon men to write it down. And to give us a body of truth by which we can live our lives and through which we can prepare for eternity. Let me read now just one verse. We'll read some others later, but let's read verse 3 of the book of Jude. Jude, who was the half-brother of Jesus and the brother of James. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
When Jude writes about the faith, he's not talking about subjective trust. He's talking about a body of truth. It's objective faith, a body of truth. And clearly, right here in this verse, we see that truth, God's truth, is not found within us, but it is over us, above us. It comes, how, how did Jude say it there? Delivered or entrusted? Some of you have the translation entrusted. Here's this body of truth that's been entrusted or delivered to us, the believers, the saints. And so here we live in a world that is increasingly given over to this paradigm The truth is determined internally, subjectively. And yet we find in our Bibles a very different picture. It's saying that truth, absolute truth, ultimate truth is not found within. It doesn't originate with us, but it comes to us. It is delivered to us. It is entrusted to us by God himself. God has spoken. Truth, ultimate truth doesn't start with us. It's not our invention. It's not ours to determine. It's not ours to establish. It is God's. Peter said this in his second letter. He said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Can you picture that? The men spoke from God, carried along, moved along by the Holy Spirit. God's word was entrusted to these men who wrote it down in Bibles by the Holy Spirit, in our Bibles by the Holy Spirit, and that in turn was given to us. And Jude says in that little phrase in verse 3, he says, once for all, don't miss that, once for all, delivered or entrusted to the saints. Once for all. It's not ours to add to it. It's not ours to delete from it. It's not ours to change it. And I think we live in this day where the, the value of that has been depreciated. And we read words like this from the pen of the Apostle Paul, and it raises a hair on our neck. That, that Paul said to the Galatian believers, he said, but even if we, even if we apostles, if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached, you ready? Let him be eternally condemned. Friends, does that sound heavy to you? That sounds really heavy to me. That the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, said, this body of truth, once for all delivered to the saints, can't be messed with. You don't don't mess with the gospel. You don't mess with God's gospel. There are dire consequences. God has given us an enduring body of truth that's not subject to the the shallow, the fickle opinions of mankind. It is divinely revealed from God through the apostles to us, the church of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. A good summary, and I want to be careful I say this. I'm not saying it's an absolute summary, but a good summary of this unchanging gospel are the five, what's known as the five solas, the five alones of the Reformation. These were the five core doctrines, the five essential doctrines of the Reformation, doctrines that shook the world through the teaching of brave men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and others that we've heard about already today. Are you familiar with the solas, the five solas, the five alones of the Reformation? 
we're going to walk through them today, one by one. And we have some slides to help you remember. You can take notes, and we will translate. I've already been asked by one of my granddaughters, what language is that? <laughs> These five solas of the Reformation. Number one, Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. What does that mean? What does sola scriptura mean? The Bible alone is God's authoritative word to man. The Bible is inerrant, that means without error, and sufficient for teaching us all that is necessary for being right with God and to live lives pleasing to Him. Or, to say it another way, everything necessary for salvation and concerning the Christian life is found in the Bible clearly enough for the ordinary believer to understand it. The Bible and the Bible alone is the final authority. Or if you want to use something from our culture, the Supreme Court regarding everything we are to believe and everything we are to do. Well, is that a teaching of the Bible? Is Sola Scriptura really a teaching of the Bible? Classic passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. If you're nimble of finger, you can turn there. If not, I'll read to you. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Is Sola Scriptura, is Scripture alone a teaching of the Bible? Paul writes to Timothy, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, all the writings are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, if you're a pragmatic person and you say, that's interesting, Pastor Larry, but... What's that have to do with my everyday life? Well, how about this? If you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior, is it not the longing of your heart? Is it not the longing of your heart to know Christ? Whether you've been a Christian for three weeks or 30 years, is it not the longing of your heart to know Christ? Even as the Apostle Paul said after he'd been a believer for 30 years, he said, I want to know Christ. Doesn't your heart resonate with his? I want to know Christ. Where are you going to learn about Christ? In the scriptures. In the Bible. And so if we look at sola scriptura for our day, scripture alone in our day, we say, I want to see Christ. So we devote ourselves as individuals to, to hearing the Bible and reading the Bible and studying the Bible. Because in the Bible we see Christ. And as we see Christ, we're empowered to live each day for Him as families and heads of home. Are you leading your family and valuing God's Word, the Scriptures? Reading it as a family, using it as your guide and determining how does God want us to live as a family, as a church? I, I get sentimental at times. I get sentimental a lot of times, I guess. <laughs> I've been thinking lately, this year is our 40th anniversary as a church. And from day one, we've been committed to sola scriptura. But we live in a society where that is increasingly diminished in value. And are we going to swim upstream on this, friends? When you think about the next 40 years, I'll probably be in heaven before we reach our 80th anniversary. 
for you kids that are here, you young adults, you kids, 40 years from now, you're going to say, Scripture alone, it's precious to us as a church. It shows us Christ. It shows us who we are in Him. It shows us our mission. It shows us how to live for Him. It tells us about what life eternal will be like with Him. That we preach it from the pulpit. We teach it in our classes, from the little kids through the adult classes. We talk about it in our life groups. We talk about it over coffee. We chat about it in our conversations as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because Scripture is valued by us because there we see Christ. There we know who he is. There we know who we are. And there we know how to be right with him. The second sola. Sola gratia. Grace alone. What does that mean? Grace alone. It means this. In salvation, we are rescued from God's righteous wrath by his grace alone. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. That's important. Salvation is a supernatural work of God in the lives of unworthy sinners and in no way is dependent on any human effort. Let me say that last phrase again in case you missed it. It is that salvation is in no way dependent on any human effort. You don't contribute to your own salvation. Not one gram. Is that a teaching of the Bible? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Romans 3, 21 through 24. Read it yourself or listen as I read it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what practical difference does sola gratia, does grace alone, have in our lives? This gets very personal if you're a believer. My salvation is not the result of anything I have done. When Paul wrote in Romans 3, apart from the law, He's saying that your salvation came apart from anything you did. It came apart from any contribution you might have made. It's apart from the law in that sense. It's apart from anything you might have paid. It's given freely. It's a free gift from God. It is by grace alone. Now, I could talk for a whole sermon. In fact, I've done this. By the way, if if you feel like I'm rushing through the five solos, it's probably because I am. Uh, but 15 years ago, we had a series here in which I preached through each of the solas individually. So each Sunday, there were five Sundays, each one having a solo. Those are on our church's website. If they're not all up yet, they'll be up soon. If you look on the church's website, look for sermons, series, Here I Stand, or Here We Stand. And uh, you'll find individual sermons on each of these solas. But back to this one of grace alone, one of the benefits, I'll mention one to whet your appetite, and that is the whole issue of assurance. If we believe that we contributed in some way to our salvation, you know, if you were to say, well, you know, God did his part. I mean, he, he, he did everything he could to save me, and then I had to add my own decision, or 
I had to add this or add that. What, what if you only added 10%? No, let me, make it, let me make it more challenging. What if you only added 1%? What if you added only 1% to your own salvation? I mean, let's give Jesus credit, man. 99% of it, it's Jesus. All I did was, my contribution was, you know, and you can fill in the blank. That 1% will plague you. That 1% will plague you your whole life. If you think your sincerity is that 1%, aren't you left wondering, was I sincere enough? If you think it was my prayer that saved me, well, did did I say the right words? If it was your morality that contributed you 1%, aren't you asking, well, was I, was I good enough? Was I moral enough? That if your contribution to your salvation is even 1%, you have to live with this dread of what if that 1% is not sufficient and I'm lost. But if you say, sola grati, all of grace, then your salvation is as sure as the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And that's Never changes. Not on your best day. Not on your worst day. That is true every day of your life. Your reconciliation, your being made right with God, is based on Jesus Christ and the grace you found in Him. My friends, you didn't add 1% to your salvation, and neither did I. All, all of grace. We sing Friends, when we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. We need to sing that with with thoughtful passion. With thoughtful passion. Let's not have any thoughtlessness letting our minds wander. Let's not be passionless, not being moved affectionately. But let us sing that song with thoughtful passion. Amazing, amazing grace. Oh, how sweet the sound that saved. Solo gratia, all of grace. The third solo. If I can see my notes. Sola fide, faith alone. What does that mean? What does sola fide, faith alone, mean? It means this. Salvation, this salvation by grace is given to unworthy sinners solely through the means of entrusting ourselves to Jesus Christ. Being declared righteous by a holy God is in no way based on anything I've done. It's only through faith in someone else. It's entrusting my eternity on a substitute, on someone else. Is that a teaching of the Bible? Well, we read from Romans 3 a while ago. Let me read it again with a little different emphasis. 24 and 25 again. Are justified, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And then Paul adds in verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the law. Or the classic verse that is said to have gotten Luther's attention, Romans 1.17, For it is in the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, or to faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Or a verse precious to many in this room, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one can boast. What practical difference? 
We can abandon hope in anything other than Jesus Christ. My, I think of this as a, as a courtroom scene. In a courtroom scene, I'm standing before the, the bench of the holy judge, the king of the universe, the judge of all men. Why should he pardon me? Why, why should he pardon me? Why should he let me live with him for eternity? On that day, I will see his son, Jesus Christ, and I'll say all of my hope is in him and through him. My hope of being pardoned by God is through faith in him. I entrust myself to Jesus Christ as my substitute. We can rest our weary souls on that gospel pillow. A fourth sola, solus Christus, Christ alone. What does that mean? It's beginning to sound like the fourth verse of the same song, doesn't it? Salvation rests entirely upon the sinless life and substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Any gospel that adds or detracts from the message of salvation in Christ alone is heresy. Is that a teaching of the Bible, Christ alone? The night before the cross, Jesus said to his men, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, listen, no one comes to the Father except through me. A few weeks later, the apostle Peter, who was there that night before the cross with Jesus, he said something very similar in a very volatile situation. He spoke boldly and said, for there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Christ alone. It means that my being right with God rests entirely upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When I try to explain this to people, I say it this way, never put a plus after Jesus Christ. You don't say, well, my hope of being right with God is Jesus plus my morality, plus my sincerity, plus my good works, plus my philanthropy, plus my family connections. Don't ever, we must never put pluses after the name of Jesus Christ. Because when we put pluses after the name of Jesus Christ, we're making a statement. We're saying, he's not sufficient. He's not enough. I have to add to Jesus Christ. I have to add to his personhood, his work. And that is dishonoring to our Savior. We never put pluses after the name of Jesus Christ. It is Christ alone. And the fifth sola, to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. What does that mean? What's that refer to? Put it all together now, everything we've already said. Because salvation entirely rests on the work of God, it is ultimately for His glory. If you or I added to our own salvation in some way, if we contributed to our salvation in some way, if we contributed to our ongoing Christian life in some way, then we would be diminishing Christ and His glory, God and His glory. He said in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, he says, I will not share my glory with another. God is unflinchingly committed to that principle, that He will not share His glory with another. And He designed salvation. He, he laid out the plan of salvation in a way that it would be crystal clear that he and he alone gets the glory, that he gets the honor. Because salvation rests entirely on the work of God, it is ultimately for his own glory. Our entire lives must be lived continuously before the face of God, under the authority of God alone, and for the purpose of bringing glory to him alone. 
Everything that's done is for God's glory. Is that the teaching of the Bible? Is that the teaching of the Bible? Yes, from cover to cover. This was the hard part. The hard part was picking a selected verse in such a short sermon. (laughs) What do you pick? I mean, the whole Bible is about the glory of God, but I picked this one. At the end of Romans 11. Paul has just spent 11 chapters, 11 chapters describing the astonishing mercies of God. You read the book of Romans and you read those 11 chapters, first 11 chapters, and and he keeps describing all these mercies of God. And it's like he can't hold it in any longer and he gets to the end of chapter 11 and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he must repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 36. And friends, if we're believers, we live every day in the context of the glory of God. And we live every day knowing that all things are from God. The breath I breathe, the home I live in, my affection for Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, my family. Everything I, everything I have is from Him. He is the source of all creation, the designer of redemption plan. And therefore, life has meaning. Everything is from God, and therefore, life has meaning. Everything is through Him. He's the sustainer of all creation, the accomplisher of redemption. And therefore, life has power. We are not left powerless. All things are to Him. He is the ultimate goal. We live in an era where people have this this fallacy of thinking. People say things like, well, history is circular. What goes around comes around. That's not true. History is not circular. History is linear. We're moving in a line toward a destination. And that destination is the new heavens and the new earth where God will come and be with us and He will be our God and we will be His people. We will see His face and we will reign with Christ forever and ever. We're moving toward that. Every day we're one step closer. We're moving toward that ultimate destination. Everything is to Him. And therefore, life has direction. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Is this your worldview? Is this your paradigm? Is this how you look at life? Would these five solas be a good summary of what you believe and how you live? The takeaway on this Reformation Sunday is that there is truth outside of us. There is a truth above us. God has spoken, and he has spoken authoritatively. I'm back in Jude. Verse 3 again. Jude says, The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then he says in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude says, contend for the faith. When he says contend, what that means is, is taking your stand. 
taking your stand. Here we stand. Luther stood that day in Worms as he stood before that assembly. And we say 500 years ago, we stand here. We stand. We want to contend for this truth of God's word, this absolute authoritative word of God. We must contend for that. And if the Lord tarries, we need to be contending for this, we and our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren, for another 500 years. One of the Reformation sayings was semper reformanda. What that means is always reforming. It doesn't mean truth changes, but it means we keep shucking off fallacies. We keep resisting things that would dilute our commitment to the absolute truth of God's word. So we're committed. We're always committed. And it's interesting when Jude says contend for the faith, he uses a present tense. Now, that might not grab you at first, but what that means is you keep on doing it. It means we keep on doing it. We keep on contending for the faith. Just like in Jude's day, he had to interrupt what he was going to write about to write this. Because he said there are people coming into the church who are heretical. There are people coming into the church who are trying to pervert the truth of God's word. They're trying to dilute it. They're trying to steer people away. I'm telling you, friends, contend for the faith. Keep on contending for the faith. And that exhortation from Jude comes ringing in our ears all these years later. That we live in a day where the gospel is being pushed on, pulled on. People try to twist it and make it into something it's not. Dilute it, forget it. That's probably one of the biggest perils in our day. By the way, this is a whole other issue, but I think one of the most grievous things in our American evangelicalism is we have an increasingly Christless Christianity. You, you listen to some sermons, you read some books, and you say, where's Christ in this? I was hearing a guy preach one time to 700 people, and he never mentioned Christ. I was in the back row. Everything inside of me, I wanted to stand up and yell, Give us Christ! Give us Christ! Instead of all this superficial morality, be a good person, be a better person, be a happier person, give us Christ. We have to keep on contending for the faith, friends. It's an active thing. It's an active thing. How do we do that? Drop down to verses 20 and 21, where Jude says, he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up, or literally building each other up, in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Build yourselves up. Well, how do you do that? Well, you take the gospel found in the Word of God and you apply it to our lives. As our friend Jerry Bridges used to say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And we've tweaked Jerry's comments to say, preach the gospel to one another every day. That as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, we want to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. If we're going to be actively contending for the faith day after day, we need to continually remind ourselves what it is we're contending for. Friends, are you spending time in the Word of God? I mean, as an individual Christian, are you spending time in the Word of God? But what has to happen for that to happen? I'm, I'm, don't answer this out loud. You know the answer in your head. What, what has to happen for that to happen? You say, no, not really. Well, what has to change? Getting up a little bit earlier? Going to bed a little bit earlier? I mean, what has to happen for you to spend time 
in God's Word. And as you open your Bible, you ask the Holy Spirit, show me Christ today. Show me Christ. Can you enjoy? Can you enjoy feasting at the banquet table of the gospel every day? That's part of contending for the faith and you're feeding your soul. You're feeding your soul. And friends, we, we do this in our families. But those of us who are in family contexts, we, we feed one another the gospel. If you're not in a family context, you have close friends, you, you feed one another the gospel. You contend for the faith by building yourselves up. We do that here in the church where we preach and we teach and we encourage, we exhort. We, we do all these things reminding one another of the gospel. Verse 20, Jude says, pray. Pray in the Holy Spirit. You know, when we realize what we're up against, we can feel so inadequate, probably because we are in and of ourselves. But the truth is, we're not of ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, pray. You pray in the Holy Spirit. You say, Holy Spirit, come and strengthen us as your people. Come and give us a holy passion for your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us an unswerving commitment to the Word of God. Help us to hang on the gospel, not just to get saved, but to live every day the Christian life. And we hang on you. And when Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, interesting phrase, I think that's kind of the picture there, that if the love of God were a circle, We've got people all the time trying to push us or pull us outside that circle. But we say, no, this, this is the gospel. This is the truth of God. This is the body of faith. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist being pushed and pulled out of that circle. I want to stay right here. I want to stay right here in the love of God. My friends, 500 years ago, Luther took his stand for the truth of God's word. And God used him to change a huge part of the world. Here I stand. We must be ready 500 years later to say, here we stand. I try to remind myself of these gospel truths known as the five solas regularly using my hand. I'm a simple person. This helps me. In the scriptures alone, we learn of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And every so often I can look at my hand and I can remember the essence of the gospel. That in scripture alone, I learn of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. 